All right, if y'all have a Bible handy, turn to Genesis chapter 40. If you don't have a Bible, you can find this uh, in the bulletin for you. Uh, We are continuing to work our way through Joseph's story. And uh, remember last week we saw Joseph uh, in jail because he was falsely accused. And this is where we find him again. He's still in jail, and he'll actually stay there for a quite a long time. We'll see. It doesn't tell us how long, but it just says for some time, which kind of gives you that feeling that uh, it felt maybe very undefined to Joseph as he lived through it. When am I going to get out of here? How do I know when I'm going to get out of here? Of course, he didn't know. And so uh, what we're going to see tonight is how to best handle discouragement uh, in our lives. Uh, Let me start in verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody, and one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness or the chesed. Remember that last week? Do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were, th- uh, there were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Word of the Lord. All right, how to handle discouragement well. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Now think about this. 
Joseph is not the only famous prisoner in the Bible. Let's just start there. Y'all tell me, who are some other famous prisoners in the Bible? John the Baptist, Paul, Daniel, Silas, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Which, whose names are fun to say, never get old. Who else we got? Jesus. Samson. John, Peter, uh, it's almost easier to name the people who hadn't been to jail among the Bible characters than to name those who had. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but a great number, I mean, I didn't tabulate the percentage before tonight, but you could probably go and do that if you have extra time on your hands. It's probably a fairly high percentage, maybe more than half of some of the greatest characters found themselves at one time or another in prison. Now, prisons were quite a bit different then than they are now. Uh, we talked about this a little bit during the meeting today about Israel uh, because there's some prisons that you visit if you go to the, the Holy Land to, to visit different sites. Uh, what were some of the differences between prisons then and now? Uh, well, number one, the reasons why people would go there were different. And the procedures for getting people there were quite different. Today, there's a pretty elaborate procedure to get someone in prison. Now, you can go to jail pretty easily, to Grady Judd's hotel over in Bartow. You can get there pretty easy. But you can't get into prison without pretty long trials and all kinds of procedural things going on. Back then, it was far more like summary. Like, like a, a guy, if, if somebody in power just didn't like you, he'd just throw you in the pit. Not a whole bunch of, not a whole bunch of uh, fuss about it. Another way that they were different is they did not have nearly the kind of amenities that our prisons have today. Now, I don't think our prisons today are Taj Mahal's by any means. Uh, I've visited in them, and they're not places that we want to live. But back then, they were even worse. Oftentimes, they were just big pits underneath the basement, underneath the house of the king. That's usually the way it was. And this is the case here. Potiphar's house... Under it was probably a basement room where they stored the wine and stuff. Under that was just a big old hole that you couldn't dig out of because it was too, the walls were too big where they just tossed people, and that's where you were in the prison. So you've got to get in your mind, Joseph is in a terrible situation. He's not watching TV and, you know, shooting hoops on, in the prison yard with the chief baker and the cupbearer, you know, right? It's not what he's doing. Instead, he's suffering over an indeterminate amount of time for something that he did not do. And to add insult to injury, he gets an assignment at the beginning of this uh, passage that would not have been very pleasant. And so let's look at it together. Three things. Joseph's assignment, Joseph's faithfulness, and finally Joseph's encouragement. This will help us think about dealing with discouragements in life. First of all, there's Joseph's assignment. Uh, look at verses 1 to 4 again. What assignment does Joseph get that would have been pretty terrible, if you think about it? He's already in jail. This is bad enough. Something worse happens. He's got to take care of, and that's a good word for it, take care of. That, where it says, uh, what word does it use in the ESV again? To attend to them. Uh, the word there is, is really like to slave for them, basically to be their 
servant. And so Joseph, who had already been elevated to the highest man in the pit, you know, the the prison warden had said, hey, you're the most responsible guy in the pit, so you're going to kind of help me keep a watch out for the other prisoners. When these two VIPs come into the pit, suddenly Joseph gets demoted again, and he has to sort of serve these two VIPs, who probably weren't very nice people. What are some of the evidences that they weren't very nice? What's that? Forgot them. Yep, that's pretty good. What else? Even right there in verses 1 to 4. Apparently they had done something, right? And, and if you don't know, a baker and a cupbearer in this time would have been sort of the top officials of a king. Can you imagine why that is? That they would want to have the cook and the wine guy being top trusted guys? Poison, right? Yeah. You want to make sure that guy is on your team uh, because he's serving you your food, he's serving you your wine. And, and so oftentimes they were very high up the totem pole, but clearly these two guys had broken trust somehow. In fact, it uses the word sin there. The word offense in verse 1 is really just the same word for sin. They had committed a sin against their Lord. We're not told what it is, but it, it must have been pretty bad. Because he threw them into jail and would eventually hang one of the two. Again, not really sure. We're not told a lot of details why he only hangs one and not the other. But nevertheless, that's how it falls out. Joseph has to become the do boy of these two uh, officials of Pharaoh in jail. How different is that than what Joseph dreamed just a little bit before? Pretty different, right? Remember what he dreamed? I'm going to hear, and then everybody's going to come bow, and I'm going to bless the world as they bow at my feet. doesn't seem like that. In fact, when he got sold into slavery, it didn't seem like that. But then he got to Potiphar, and he got raised up to the top, and it seemed like it might happen. And then all of a sudden, he's back down in the pit. And then he gets raised up to the top of the prison, and it seemed like it might happen. And then he gets lowered back down again. Do you see kind of the way Joseph's life is going? As soon as he gets just a small taste of what God showed him his his future would be, it's gone. It's kind of like Joseph is uh, going along. It's it's like a crash is happening over and over again in his life. The thing about a crash is you don't see it coming. It's unexpected. And you're riding along and all of a sudden out of nowhere, boom, something hits you or you hit something. And it's like Joseph is just going on in his life, trusting the Lord, and then, boom, something hits him and completely derails him. And I want to tell you, that right there is a good insight into what often causes discouragement in every one of our lives. Discouragement, I think, can be defined as unmet expectations. Anybody agree with that? Anybody disagree with that? Unmet expectations. I mean, you don't get discouraged if your expectations are low and those expectations are met, do you? But if your expectations are here and it comes in here, you're very discouraged, tremendously so. This seems to happen over and over again in Joseph, and it often happens to us. In Proverbs 13, 12, uh, I love this little proverb. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. 
You could say unmet expectations make the heart sick. It's not telling you that's either right or wrong in that proverb. It's just telling you the fact. When when your expectations aren't met, it will make your heart sick. When your expectations are met, the proverb says, when a dream is fulfilled, it's like a tree of life, it says. It's so encouraging when your dreams come true or when your expectations are met. But when they're not, it's extraordinarily discouraging. Now, is anybody surprised by this? Has anyone in here not experienced this type of discouragement before? I think every single one of us, right? Sometimes our expectations are good expectations, and they're still not met. It's not just the bad expectations that we have that God frustrates. Sometimes he frustrates even our good expectations. I mean, this is, I mean, Joseph has a good goal in mind here. He wants to save his family. That's what God told him he was going to use him for. It's a good thing. And yet God is consistently bringing Joseph through providence. Not that he's directly doing it. There's other evil actors at work. But God is through his providence leading Joseph into various positions where he's going to be discouraged. He's going to be brokenhearted. We're going to see Joseph responding to that in an extraordinary way here. But the first thing we need to notice is just simply that this happens to God's people. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by it. Uh, now, how do we tend to respond to discouragement? Let me, let me hear from you a little bit. What are our normal responses when we hit the wall like Joseph does? Why me? Why me? Yeah, why me? Anger. So there's a little bit of pity. That's what I hear in why me like pity. Oh, poor is me. Anger. Complaining. Shut down. Yeah. Makes the heart sick. And so a sick heart often just folds up and quits. What else? Lack of joy. Yeah. Lack of motivation even. Don't you think? I think it's interesting that in our cultures, but with any emotion, actually, I think in our culture, we tend to run to one of two extremes. And discouragement is one of the emotions, right? And I think we do this with a lot of emotions. We either run to the extreme of suck it up, forget about it, doesn't matter, be a man, be a woman, get about it, just stop. Or we go to the you must bow to your emotions and you are what you feel. Right? Either they're nothing or they're everything. And I, one of the things I love about Scripture, uh, and it's teaching emotionally, and you get this in the Psalms a lot, is it's teaching you that they're not nothing, but it's also teaching you they're not everything. Right? Uh, you, you don't need to dismiss them as if it, there's nothing for them to teach you or that God is teaching you through them, but you also don't need to act like you've got to be the slave to every single emotion that comes your way. There's a different path that you can take through all kinds of emotions, whether they are good, positive ones or whether they are negative ones, because we tend to do that with both types of emotion. Uh, I think discouragement's the perfect time to stop and ask questions. I don't know if Joseph did this. Um, there's nothing here that says that he did, but I could imagine that he's doing something like this over those years that he's sitting there in that pit. Asking questions such as, and this is, these might be questions that you ask when you're discouraged. 
What expectation did I have that's not being met? Am I justified in having that expectation? Was it the right expectation to begin with? If not, what expectation should I have had instead? If it is justified, is it possible that that expectation is being met in some other way? Or maybe it is simply that God is wanting me to wait on whatever that expectation is being fulfilled. These are the types of questions that I think are so important when we face discouragement. Don't say it's nothing because it's probably got something to teach you. You feeling discouraged is telling you something at least about your heart. But don't think it's everything because it's not, right? Uh, We sometimes are way too easily discouraged. And a lot of times the Lord wants us in those moments by asking questions in his presence to feel his strengthening work going on in our hearts, which is what I think we see in the next scene with Joseph. You'll look with me at the second point, Joseph's faithfulness shining through. Uh, Verses 5 through 19. Let me just ask you this. What does Joseph do? He's in the pit for the second time. He's underneath two bad guys that he has to serve hand and foot every day. What does he do? Yes, look at that. uh, Thank you for noticing that. Take a look. They both had a dream, verse 6, when Joseph came into them in the morning, which kind of shows you a little bit about how how much of a servant he needed to be to them. Like he was checking on them in the morning, you know. This was truly a servant relationship. When he came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked them, why are your faces downcast today? That's remarkable. That the king of discouragement is more worried about someone else's discouragement than his own. Do you you find that remarkable? That he actually notices the downcast face of someone else when his own face was surely downcast. And surely he had reason to be, humanly speaking. And yet he cares. He goes above and beyond the call of duty. He was probably going in to check on them. Hey, do you need breakfast? What you want? I got the newspaper this morning. Here here you go. All he had to do was that. He He wasn't like, you know, required to ask them about their emotional state. Surely not. He just needed to feed them and make sure everything was taking care of their needs. But he goes above and beyond the call of duty. He serves and asks them about something that he notices written on their face. He was not sarcastic. No, he was. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Don't you like the prison food? What's wrong? Yeah. He he didn't do any sarcasm. It was was real, genuine, why are you downcast? What's going on? I notice a difference in you. And then when they share it with him, hey, here's our dreams, here's the pickle we're in. We're used to living in Pharaoh's court, you see, and in Pharaoh's court there are magicians and there are necromancers and all kinds of other people that when we have dreams like this, we just go to them and they give us the interpretation. We don't have that here, we're in jail We're distressed because we feel like there's something important about these dreams. And what does Joseph do? Notice verse 8. 
Joseph said to them, Don't all interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me. Now think about this. Don't all interpretations belong to God? Put yourself in the cupbearer and the baker's position. What does that question from Joseph communicate to you? Hmm? Joseph's trust God. Yeah, Joseph's saying, I trust God. Yeah, good. He knows where the answers come from. Good. What else? You're sitting there. You're pagan as the day is long. You don't know anything about Joseph's God. But Joseph says, don't all interpretations belong to God? Okay. Okay, so not the magicians. Yeah, so he's pointing them higher. Yep. He, yeah. Yeah. It does seem, if your goal is to get out of jail, uh, that you would take the credit for this. might help you. Uh, if one of these guys does end up springing free, hey, you look like a really smart guy. If you're able, you might become one of the magicians in Pharaoh's court. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he states it in such a way that it's, it's almost an expression even of God's kindness towards the cupbearer and the baker. Don't all interpretations belong to God? In other words, Joseph is implying, don't you think God sent you these dreams? Don't you think God is trying to tell you something? Old Mr. Cupbearer and old Mr. Baker? Don't you see God is paying attention to you? And he's supplying you what you need every day. I mean, Joseph is almost, he's, he's more than just giving them a lesson in theology. Joseph is trying to demonstrate to them that God cares even, yes, for them. God is watching. God is paying attention. God is providing, even for you, even in this place. Joseph is taking on the ministry of encouragement. Even when he is heavily, I'm sure, tempted to be discouraged himself. Why? How was he able to do that? I think the only way he could be able to do that is because his eyes are on God. Don't you know the interpretations belong to God? God. That's where your eyes have to be. You ever watch a football game? And um, or any sport, but especially football, when the quarterback goes to hand off the ball, and every now and then the cameraman will miss where the ball is. <laughs> Say the guy fakes the handoff, and the camera stays on the running back, and then all of a sudden the camera swings back over because really the quarterback kept it. That's what a trick play is all about, right? It's trying to keep your eyes on the wrong thing so that you'll miss the right thing. And oftentimes, discouragements in our lives are really these, these big old, they have the potential to being like fake plays that very easily get our eyes off of God and onto ourselves. They, they tend to very much turn ourselves inward way too much rather than keeping our eyes on the fact that God is out there and God is actually at work and doing something. What we see here in Joseph is his relentless ability to keep his eyes where they belong 
so that when he's being pressed by discouragement, he is able to reach out and help people who are discouraged too. Uh, there's a book um, by a man named, uh, his last name is Harris, and I can't remember his first name. He wrote a book called The Happiness Trap. Uh, he's a psychologist. Um, not, I, don't, I do not endorse everything in the book by any means, but th- this book is interesting because his whole point is that we tend to obsess over happiness to the point that we actually can't be happy. And here's what he says. This is real, I love this. He says, happiness... We have to learn that happiness is not a state of feeling good, but a state of doing good. If we're so obsessed over feeling good, chances are we're probably not going to feel good anytime soon because we're not designed to run on the fumes of our own feelings. We're designed to run on something bigger. But if we put ourselves to doing good, serving, helping, we might find, we're more likely to find that happiness will follow. He wrote a whole book about it, and he uses all kinds of data and all the things that psychologists do to try to make the point that an obsession over feelings doesn't tend to produce the things that we think it will. Listen to what one commentator says about Joseph. He says, here we see Joseph overcoming the first temptation that everyone who is discouraged faces which is to stop caring for other people. It's the first temptation. When you're discouraged, your first temptation is you want to ignore everybody else because I've got a lot of problems. These men were Egyptians, and Joseph had no reason to be bonded to them. What did they have to worry about compared to what Joseph had gone through? He could easily have left them to their worries and gone about his business. Isn't that what we so often do in the midst of suffering? Suffering turns us in on ourselves. Our own fears and worries become all-consuming, leaving us with little time or energy to think about others. We desire to expect others to inquire about our sorrows, but the last thing that we want is the burden of someone else's troubles. We have enough of our own already. Yet Joseph saw these men as human beings, and he cared enough about their concerns to ask them what was going on and to reach out and do everything he could to help them with the power of God. Wow, now that's a way to, to handle discouragement. Let me tell you, I'm not, I don't know that I'm great at this. I'm not up here talking to you about it because I think I'm good at it. I'm up here because I'm trying to also learn from Joseph. <laughs> I'm trying to also learn from what Scripture teaches us about human happiness, which is not what the world teaches us about human happiness. It would, it would draw our attention to God and others more than it would draw our attention inward to ourselves. I know that's a hard thing to do, but that's, that's part of it. In fact, the scriptures tell us uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, that, it's, that love flows out of a, of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And, and right there, we don't have time to go into it, but there's a little chain there. Maybe sometime I'll tell you about it. The chain that comes. Love is produced by a pure heart, which is produced by a good conscience, which is only produced by a sincere faith. Or to say it the other way, a sincere faith produces a good conscience, which produces a good heart, which produces the ability to love. And that's what God is calling on us to, to show as Christians when, he, when we're brought into discouraging situations. To show the reality of our sincere faith. Peter says, the tested genuineness of your faith is being tested through trials. So that it might be found to be genuine. So that it might be to the praise 
of God's glory. Now let's look at the last thing. In our few minutes of time left, Joseph's uh, encouragement. Uh, In verses 20 to 23, God is kind to Pharaoh, but he's the only one who's kind to Pharaoh. I mean, God is kind to Joseph, but he's the only one that's kind to Joseph. Who is not kind to Joseph? Yeah, just about everybody, right? Pharaoh has this birthday party. Uh, I don't know what we're to make of that. Why it mentions birthday. Uh, maybe there was some custom that on Pharaoh's birthday he released a prisoner. I don't know. Sometimes that was a custom in the ancient world. Like, um, for example, Pilate, uh, you know, who said at Passover, it's our custom to release a prisoner on this holy day. Uh, people did that back, back then. Even today, presidents give pardons on their last days in office. So it could have been that this was like a pardon day, maybe. Or it could have been maybe he was at a party and just got ripped, drunk, (laughs) and uh, decided he wanted to lift up one of his buddies back to his former position. I don't know. We're not told. Other than Joseph is forgotten. When the cupbearer comes back to his position, it makes a point to tell us, verse 23, he did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Do you notice how it says it twice? Negative, then positive. He didn't remember him, but forgot him. Why would it say it that way? He really forgot him, and it, that, must have, that must certainly have been how it felt to Joseph. Uh, insult to injury. Uh, it wasn't just a, man, you forgot to call me, we were supposed to go have lunch. No, this, Joseph had saved this man's life, in a sense, right, by, by interpreting this dream to him. Joseph had begged him. Remember when I, I pointed that out in the reading, verse 14? He begged this man to show him chesed, covenant, faithful, steadfast love, which is what that word kindness is. Show me chesed. He begged him. And yet when the guy got what Joseph told him God was about to give him, Joseph wasn't even in his thoughts, wasn't even in his plans. No chesed for Joseph. Or was there? What evidence in those verses is there that God did not forget Joseph? You got to look for it. You got to think about it. But it's there. A big thing happens that doesn't normally happen. Um, when you get up in the morning and say, hey, here's what I dreamed. Does your spouse tell you what they think it means and then all of a sudden it happens? Has that ever happened to you? Is that a normal everyday occurrence? That you tell somebody your dream and they're like, here's what it means. And then boom, three days later. Phew. Ever happened to anybody? No, this is an unusual thing, right? This is clearly an act of God. Don't interpretations belong to God? He gives them the interpretation. And lo and behold, three days later, who comes through? God comes through. And yes, Joseph gets forgotten, and he'll stay in prison for another two years, which we see in chapter 41, verse 1, after two whole years more. Yet, think about how Joseph feels. God has come through for him. 
even though the cupbearer didn't. The dream that God had opened up Joseph's eyes to see, and its meaning that he had opened up his eyes to see, had actually happened. What is Joseph thinking? What is he feeling? Clint? There you go, right? Wow. God is a God who keeps his word. He, if he kept it to these scallywags, you know, if God cared enough about those two guys to send him a dream and then come and do exactly what he said he was going to do, what is God going to do for me? He's connected. Last week at the end, we made a big deal about how I said God had pitched a tent of Hesed over Joseph. It was like God's love had become for Joseph a covering on all sides. And here's another example of that. God is demonstrating his love for Joseph. He had already been demonstrating it. When Joseph saw with his own eyes how God fulfilled a dream, it must have fueled Joseph's faith to believe that God was going to fulfill his. He could hang in there. It may be two more years, it may be ten more years, but God's going to come through somehow. I can keep going. So as Christians, I think the best thing for us to do is to always remember in our discouragements, everybody else may forget us. No one may be like Joseph in your life. No one may be even noticing what's on your face or asking about it or caring. God knows. God sees. God cares. God will follow through on every single thing he's ever told you. In fact, in, in a great sense, we have to look ahead to the greatest of all the prisoners in the Bible here, right? We have to look to the greatest dream interpreter that we ever read about in Scripture. Who's that? The Lord Jesus, right? Our, our Lord, who was placed into prison. And, you know, he was also, like the cupbearer, his head was taken from him. <laughs> or the baker, rather. His head was taken from him. But like the cupbearer, he was lifted up to the highest place. He, he got both of them. He got the curse and the blessing at the cross and at the resurrection. And why did he do that? The Bible says he did it that we might have peace with God. Why do we need to have peace with God? So that when we suffer, it says in Romans 5, we have peace with God so that when we suffer, we might rejoice in our sufferings. How in the world can we do that, Paul? How, you're talking crazy. How can we rejoice in our sufferings? Because suffering produces. Right. Yeah. And actually, you could just stop it there, and it's a world of meaning. Suffering produces. What a marvel. Doesn't it feel like suffering wastes? Most of the time, doesn't it feel like it just zaps everything you've got and nothing's left? And yet God's word is this. I've got a dream for you. Suffering will produce. Oh, God, I don't see it. No, nope, trust me. In Christ, I have pitched a tent of hesed over you. And whatever sufferings you go through, they will be productive. I'll see to it. You say, well, I don't believe it. I can't. Don't worry. You don't have to believe it. It's still going to happen. 
I'm sure it doesn't tell us much about Joseph's you know, failings and struggles, but I'm sure he struggled. I mean, it's giving us the highlights here. And we're going to struggle too. And yet God says, struggle all you want. Your suffering is going to produce. Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Just like this. Yeah. Cupbearer, baker. They got they got the front row seat to a pretty amazing act of service. That I guarantee you, nobody else in that pit was going to do that. You know. But God had prepared Joseph in just that very way. And it could be that he's preparing us for that in different parts of our lives. Listen to this. This comes from the same commentator. This is what we'll close with. He says, here at the end, we see Joseph facing the second temptation that discouragement brings. See, the fir- What was the first one? Forget everybody else, right? It's all about me. I got to fix me. And I get that. I felt that, right? It's common. The second temptation is also common. When we struggle, the second temptation is we lose faith in God. It's easy to see why this happens. Yet in spite of personal disappointments, Joseph still had a remarkable faith in God's power and his goodness. He confidently believed that God had given the dreams to these men out of his goodness to communicate with them. And that God was powerful enough to accomplish the things prophesied in the dreams. And when God showed that he was powerful enough to prophesy in the dreams. It helped Joseph in whatever way he may have been struggling to lose his confidence and trust in God. It helped him get another wind. Sometimes it's a long time before we get that second wind. Right? That's hard. I I get it. God will always come through. That's what chesed means. And he surrounded us with it. Hope deferred makes a heart sick, but a dream realized is a tree of life.